Do you want to be seen? My children certainly do. Uh, They often come to me, uh, Daddy, watch me jump. Daddy, uh, watch me do the zip line. Daddy, come see me. Come see my creation. They want to be seen. They want to know that I know them, love them, approve of them. They want to please me. Do you want to be seen? The answer, if you're honest, is yes. All of us want to be known, loved, and approved. Oftentimes, we go looking for that approval in the wrong places, in people, in career, in culture. The Bible shows us there is only one person's approval, one person's seeing that will satisfy us. It's not that it's not a good thing for a child to want to please their parents or for a spouse to want to please their partner. It's that when the desire to please others becomes ultimate in one's life, rather than auxiliary, it becomes idolatrous. The people of God are to live or an audience of one, in order to please primarily one person, God himself. So as we come to Matthew chapter 6 this morning, we'll cover parts of those first 18 verses. We're going to take out the Lord's Prayer and come back to it in a couple weeks. There's really one question that is governing this section. I was tempted to make it my main idea, but as you can see, I didn't do that. But here's the question. Who do you want to see you? Who do you want to see you? Main idea is this. Kingdom citizens don't worry about being seen because they know God sees. Disciples live not to please men, but to please God. And I want to offer you the exhortation that comes from Christ in verse 1, beware of hypocrisy. And just to be clear on what I mean when I talk about hypocrisy, so we can understand this exhortation on the front end, um, I don't mean a Christian who fails to live up to the bar of perfection. Right? I, don't, I don't mean somebody who follows Jesus and sometimes sins. That's, that's not a hypocrite. A hypocrite is someone who pretends to be one thing when in fact they are another. The Greek word simply means uh, to be like an actor. So if you want to get it in your head, this might not be helpful to you, it's helpful to me. I always think of Bob Saget. Uh, He used to play the dad on Full House back in the day, so 80s, 90s children, you'll remember him. And he, he played, he was, I mean, man, the dad, he was this wholesome, like gentle, loving character. You thought, what, what a sweet man. Right? And then at some point, you know, I thought that through most of my life. And then in college, somebody introduced me to Bob Saget's stand-up routine. And I was quite shocked. 
he was nothing like the dad on Full House. He was, he was vile and crude, vulgar. He merely played someone on TV. Who he really was came out in his comedy. See, that's what a hypocrite is. They play a role. And Jesus is calling us here to beware of hypocrisy as it relates to our righteous acts, as it relates to the things we do. And he points out three chief practices among Jews. There were the giving of alms, praying, and fasting. You can see that reflected in your outline. He's going to address all three. And you'll notice a theme throughout, right? He's, he's going to start out, he's saying, don't be like these hypocrites. They do this to be praised by others, to be seen by others, but instead, get in secret and offer your heart to the Lord because God sees. So that'll, that'll come out as we work our way through the passage this morning. With that in mind, let's pray and we'll begin our time together. Father, we come to this passage this morning looking for you to change us once more, to reveal to us our own secret sins. We recognize there are, there are two types of hypocrites, Lord. Those who deliberately try to deceive others and those who are ignorant to the fact that they are hypocrites. We pray that if we are either, you would make it known to us. You would lead us to repentance, lead us back to Christ who died so that we might live. He came to make us alive, to show us that we are not the dead sinners that we were born as, but that we who have trusted in Christ are saints, members of the household of God. Father, we pray that you would speak to us this morning. Your word is good. Hide it in our hearts. Use it to nourish us, and to strengthen us, Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's set the context quickly once more. We've been working our way through the book of Matthew, and Matthew took pains in those first four chapters to lay out Jesus' credentials as king. Jesus has the right pedigree, he fulfills the right prophecies, and he has the right endorsements. Specifically, God the Father's. When he says at his baptism, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus is the rightful king. He's the long-awaited Messiah king who has come and will deliver his people. And then he takes us to chapters 5 through 9 where he brings us into contact with the king's authority and power. And in chapters 8 and 9, we haven't got there yet, we will recognize and be witness to Jesus displaying his power over diseases, demons, and even death. To this point, though, we've been situated in chapters 5 through 7 
and perhaps Jesus' most famous sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, Jesus teaches not as a mere interpreter of God's word, but as God himself. You see, there's a note in chapter 7, verse 28, at the conclusion of the sermon, Matthew writes it, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And we go, well, why were they astonished at his teaching? And Matthew tells us, verse 29, because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus teaches as one with authority. He teaches as God himself, and he has two goals in the Sermon on the Mount. He wants to call us to himself in faith and to call us to holiness. And so he shows us that we might think that we're, well, pretty, pretty good people, and that when we die, we could stand before God and go, I've done more good things than bad things, and therefore I should enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, that's actually not really true. See, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no way enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, you think, you think that you've kept the sixth commandment because you haven't killed anybody? I tell you, you have committed murder with your mouth. You've broken the commandment. You think that you haven't committed adultery because you've been faithful to your fat spouse, haven't slept with anyone else? I tell you, adultery can be committed with a lustful look. Indeed, some of you have tried to get around the seventh commandment by casually divorcing your spouse and remarrying. And I tell you, you are guilty of adultery still. You think, you think some of you have found a loophole to allow for your lies by the taking of oaths? No. All of your oaths are ultimately in God's name. You can't even swear by your own head. And your oaths are a poor substitute for integrity. He comes down and then gives us positive injunctions. Don't seek revenge. Don't look to take back from those who take from you. Look to give to them graciously. Love even your enemies and pray for those who persecute you because if you just love the people that like you, well, anybody can do that. Tax collectors can do that. Mobsters can do that. Even politicians have people that like them. It says you're called to be changed, to live differently if you're in my kingdom. And so, so what he's getting us to is this conclusion in verse 48 of those six antithesis, he says, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That mirrors Leviticus 19.2, be holy because the Lord your God is holy. And two things should happen at that point. We should be driven back to the Beatitudes in verse 3 in chapter 5 when we ask, who gets into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus tells us, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what we need to recognize in this sermon is that Jesus is calling us to himself. We are to recognize, I can't do enough good things to make up for all the sin in my life. I can't earn God's favor. I can't fight my way into the kingdom of heaven, even by the best of works. It doesn't matter how good I am. I stand condemned. I need a savior. And Jesus is saying, I am that savior. You want peace with God? You want to enter the kingdom of heaven? 
Come to me, not with your good works, but with empty hands of faith and say, I need you, Jesus. And Jesus, he will give you his righteousness, which has earned the favor of God. And he will take your sins, the punishment for which he bore on the cross at Calvary. Jesus calls us to himself, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and he calls us to holiness. All of these instructions are not just there that we might ignore them and go, well, doesn't really apply to me, can't do it, need Jesus, all good. No, Jesus means to command us. These are real imperatives for real Christians. And we will misunderstand verse 48 if we think it means moral perfection. It doesn't. The the idea is this is an ideal towards which we are to strive. We will not ever be able to obey God perfectly, but we can obey God in a way that pleases Him. So we strive to obey the commands of Christ. And Jesus sort of knows how we are. He's calling us to pursue holiness, to hear His word, and to do it. But he also knows that some of us, well, we're clever, and we'll find a way to flip good deeds and righteous acts into unrighteous acts. So he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then here we are, chapter 6, verse 1, next words out of his mouth. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Giving to us the theme for the next 17 verses. He says, you might start striving towards these things and then understand them as an opportunity for you to bring attention to yourself. There is a a sharp dichotomy in these verses between doing good deeds, outwardly good, to bring glory to yourself and doing outward deeds in order to bring glory to God. That's ultimately what Jesus is getting at here with this public versus private dichotomy that we'll see. It's basically saying, if you wouldn't seek me when no one is watching, when it's only me who sees you, then I don't have your heart. The applause and approval of others has hold of you. Years ago now, and some of you will know this story, uh, I went to an engagement party. And people used to do such things, I don't know if they do that anymore, but there was a huge spread of desserts, and so uh, I had begun calculating from the moment I showed up, which of these delicious items am I going to have? You know, brownies? Ice cream cake? Ooh, you know, a little... Lemon meringue, let's change it up a little bit. But then one particular cake caught my eye. It's just lavishly covered in whipped cream. I'm a sucker, little sprinkles on top. I thought, man, this looks wonderful. And so I, I took the knife and began to cut out a sizable piece for myself. You know, not one of those little tiny ones that they give you at birthday parties, like a big piece of this cake. And to my horror... Uh, some wicked and evil person had disguised a watermelon to appear as if it were a cake. 
This is what hypocrisy is. It looks like one thing on the outside, but is rotten and disgusting on the inside. This is what Jesus is warning us against. He's saying, don't show yourself to be a cake when you're really a watermelon. Be cake all the way through. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. See, that question, who do you want to see you, is front and center already. Who who do you live for? Who do you aim to please? If you are practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, to be applauded by them, you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. You bring glory to yourself. Well, it is a vapid, temporal, ultimately worthless reward. Jesus then moves to give us three examples. Three examples, and these are the three chief areas of Jewish piety. He begins with giving in verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be praised by others. And truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jewish folks uh, used to uh, give alms as part of the piety. There is a little confusion or debate about these verses, because early on in the church, people took these words of Jesus about trumpets to be literal. And so some have suggested that uh, when there was a specific need for something, uh, all, a, a trumpet would be played from the temple. So that if you were somebody who was waiting to give, you know, you hear the trumpet, you like run out of your little shop or your little marketplace and you run down and you give so everybody can see you. Others have suggested there are a little, some kind of horn mechanism that when you drop your money in what was the equivalent of an offering plate, it, it sounds off, you know, It's unlikely that either of those is true, even though we see it pretty early on. I just, there's not any corroborating evidence. Most likely, this is an illustration from Jesus that means something tantamount to, uh, don't toot your own horn. I've always pictured it sort of, uh, when you go about your giving as as having like a parade behind you of a band, like, uh, you know, they're bringing all the attention to you so that you can demonstrate to everybody how generous you are. That's the idea of what these Pharisees, these hypocrites are doing. They want to bring attention to themselves and to their giving so that they might be praised by others. You know, did you, did you see Bob on Sunday? He, he had one of those big giant checks and he put it in the offering plate. It was physically large and it was for a large amount. Bob is such a good guy. Meanwhile, Bob is cake on the outside, and watermelon on the inside. He's he's living for the praise of others. The purpose of his action is so that he might be praised by others. 
And Jesus tells us he's got his reward already and it's empty. Instead, he says, give in such a way as to not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, sometimes people get twisted knots over that, but, but you know, you're smart people. We've been walking through the, the Sermon on the Mount and we have pointed out time and again that Jesus loves hyperbole. He, he loves exaggerated language. And what he's saying is, is given such a way that you are not aiming to impress anyone, even yourself, right? It's not, it's not like my right hand and my left hand that I can help them not know anything, right? Let your giving be in secret so that your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He's calling us to exercise true piety, to give not so that we might be seen and praised by others, but because we love Him, because He has our heart. Not because we want others to see us, but because we know that God sees us. And He is the one that we are living for. He's not saying, Christian, if anybody ever catches you giving, you're in sin. If your giving ever encourages somebody, well, lost your reward. Sorry. It's not what he's saying. I mean, how, how many of us just this morning came to, to give publicly? Right? Jesus is not telling us to hide all of our acts of piety here. Right? He's going to tell us to be in secret over and over again. Again, that's about us thinking about what our heart is, what our motivations are for the righteous action. Because it's the motivation that makes the action ultimately acceptable or unacceptable. He's not telling us to hide our Christianity. After all, earlier on in the same sermon, verse 16 of chapter 5, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So there is a way to honor God while others see what we do, and there's a way to dishonor Him. It all depends on our motives. It all depends on who we are concerned with seeing us, who we're concerned with pleasing. Who are you concerned with pleasing? Think of uh, Acts chapter 4, the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. The very end of Acts 4, Barnabas is being celebrated. He sold a piece of land that he owned, and he gave all of it to the church. And everybody is super encouraged, and they're like, man, Barnabas is awesome. He's so encouraged me. And he stands out as a model of piety. It's a good thing. But then immediately at the beginning of chapter 5, right after that, we have Barnabas's foil, Ananias and Sapphira. They're not concerned with exercising true piety, but with performance. They want the applause of others. You remember the story, uh, they sell a piece of property that they own, they keep back a portion of it for themselves, and then they go to Peter and lay the, the portion that they haven't kept for themselves before them and say, we've sold everything for the church. Cake-like on the outside, watermelon on the inside. Peter, you know, Ananias goes by himself first. I guess Sapphira is, you know, taking some extra time to do her hair and her makeup. Uh, and, and he goes, and Peter says, how much did you sell it for? He lies, and Peter says, you haven't, you've lied not to men, but to the Holy Spirit. 
and he exercises the first case of church discipline. Ananias drops dead. Some guys come and carry him out. I imagine that was a little awkward. What happened here? I just take him, bury him. Sapphira comes a little bit later. She tells the same lie that Ananias does. And Peter says to her, Acts 5, verse 9, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. What was the difference between Barnabas' gift and the gift of Ananias and Sapphira? It wasn't wrong for them to keep part of it for themselves. It was wrong of them to give in such a way that their hearts were set on the approval of others rather than the approval of God. Brothers and sisters, we need to ask, as it relates to all of our piety, what's my motivation? God's glory or my own glory? We are to give, not because we are trying to be seen by others, but because we know that God sees. Next, Jesus takes us to the subject of prayer. Look with me at verse 5 of chapter 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Do you see the pattern developing? For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. I love that. God is in the secret place where no one else is. Go to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Gentiles here refers to unbelievers or pagans. Don't heap up empty phrases as the pagans do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. It was custom for Jews to pray at particular times of the day. Praying in the synagogue was pretty normal. Praying on the street corners was not so normal. But what some folks would do, they would love the attention from prayer in the synagogues, yes, and others would plan to be out in public when one of those times of prayer during the day would come up, right? So they'd be out, people bustling around, and oh, you know what? It is time to pray. They'd stand, which is the tip, one of the typical postures of prayer, put their hands out, like a peacock, you know. Everybody come and see how humble and prayerful I am. It's kind of crazy. Prayer is turned into performance art so that they might be seen by others, praised by others, have the approval of others. Jesus here is, is ruling out praying as performance. He also rules out pagan prayer. You see that in verse 7. Pagans uh, would all also uh, let me slow down. Pagans would often use a whole bunch of words repeated over and over and over again in an attempt 
to manipulate or control a particular deity, sort of like a, a magic incantation, so that the, the purpose of the prayer was to get the deity to do what they wanted. That's very different than Christian prayer, right? When we pray, we are not trying to win God to our will. Right? When we pray, we are being one to his will. We're not praying to be popular, to get approval. We're praying to commune with the Lord our God. So don't, don't pray as performance, don't pray as pagan, but instead pray deliberately with your heart set on your Father, right? That's what verse 6 is about. When you go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And so we're back to that same question. Who do you want to see you? Whose glory are you after, yours or God's? It's not that we would never pray publicly, right? Jesus, in verse 9, is going to pray publicly and corporately. The early church prays corporately, together, publicly, over and over again. We also want to make sure that we don't misunderstand Jesus to say that we shouldn't pray a long time. Sometimes people look at verse 7 and say, they think they will be heard for their many words, and they go, all right, I don't want to pray for longer than like five minutes because then God's not going to hear me, right? Again, Jesus spends whole nights in prayer. Jesus repeats himself in prayer. Matthew 26, verse 44, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and we read in verse 44, so leaving them, that's the disciples, again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. So when we, we pray, we do want to plan to pray. It's okay for us to persist in prayer and to pray a long time. I, I would encourage it. It's a good thing. But if we begin to pray as performance to gain the approval of others, we've taken a misstep. If we begin to pray to try and bend God's will to our will, we've misunderstood the purpose of prayer. We've misunderstood who God is and who we are. I do love verse 8. Do not be like them. Why not? Because your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask Him. God does not need to be roused to action. He doesn't need to be informed about anything. He knows what you need. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from His will. Not a hair falls from your head apart from His will. He is sovereign he is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He knows what you need. Our prayers are made effective insofar as they are conformed to His will and bring us into communion with Him. Place in Scripture that really brings out sort of the, the difference between um, prayer as performance and pagan versus prayer as truly pious, lots of P's there, uh, is in 1 Kings chapter 18. You probably know this story. Uh, there has been a setup, sort of a battle royale. Uh, it's, it's a battle between the one true God and the God Baal. 
And in Baal's corner, there are 450 of his prophets. And in God's corner, there is Elijah. And so here's the test. Here's how, how this competition is going to go. They're each going to get a bull. They're going to cut it up into the appropriate pieces, build an altar, put the bull on the altar. And then the God who answers from heaven with fire, that God is the one true God. And Elijah, he's a nice guy. And so he says, all right, prophets of Baal, you go first. There's a bunch of people around watching this whole thing unfold on Mount Carmel. And so the prophets of Baal begin to, to call out all morning. I love kings as and no one answered, and no one heard. There's only silence. Elijah mocks them. My kids always love this part. Uh, they, he mocks them, and he says, maybe Baal is on vacation. Maybe he's taking a bathroom break. Who knows? I'm sure he'll hear you eventually. They begin to cry and wail all the more. They begin cutting themselves, try and bring his attention to them. They're frenzied, heaping up many phrases, and there is no answer. Then Elijah says, okay, it's my turn, and I'll take this a step further. Uh, here's my altar, here's my sacrifice. Why don't you get some water? Pour the water all over the wood and on the sacrifice. And he offers this simple prayer in verse 36 of 1 Kings 18. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. God knows exactly what you need before you ask. He knew Elijah's request before it came across his lips. And he answered with fire. Indeed, God answers prayers that we haven't even thought to pray yet. He provides for Elijah's need of fire, and he has provided our need of reconciliation with him. Friends, while we were dead in our sins, no hope of coming to life or of turning to the Lord, God provided a way for us to come back into his presence, to be at peace with him. I mean, all of us have rebelled against God. We've rejected his rule in favor of our rule, in favor of following our hearts. All of us are traitors and deserve to earn a traitor's death. We have earned hell, an eternity under his wrath, his right wrath. Yet in his mercy, God has provided for us the opposite of what we deserve. A substitute for all his people, for all who will repent of their sin and trust in King Jesus. Jesus came 
to live a perfect life that earned the blessing of God and to die a substitutionary death in the place of all who will trust in him. Friends, God has loved us with an indescribable love. Jesus lived that perfect life so that his righteousness might be credited to us. Jesus died so that our sins might be credited to him. The end result of those who trust in Jesus, Jesus' life counts as our life. Jesus' death counts as our death. Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection unto eternal life. Jesus' ascension to heaven's throne assures us that he is ruling and reigning over all things right now and that he will keep his word to return and to make all things new. God provided for us a savior before we even thought to ask for it. While we were still God's enemies, Christ died for us so that we might live. God knows what you need before you ask him. He provided fire for Elijah. He has provided salvation for his people. And guess what? He can provide for your daily needs. He can handle it. He's good at it. Non-Christian, Jesus' life can be your life. His death can be your death. Your judgment day can get moved from the last day all the way back to Good Friday. You can have peace with God, the hope of eternal life rather than eternal torment, if you will lay down your arms of rebellion and bend your knee to King Jesus. Maybe you're not a religious hypocrite. You're playing at Christianity, but a different sort of actor, pretending that you are satisfied with this life, materialistic explanations of it. You know, I come from meaninglessness, I die and go to meaninglessness, and in between, I live a meaningless life, but, you know, I create my own meaning, my own way. You were made for eternity. That longing in you for the eternal was made to be satisfied. And it can only be satisfied by Christ alone, the creator of all things. You don't have to buy the lies of the world. You were made to worship God together with his people forever. You are made for Christ-exalting community. You don't have to try and please everyone around you. You can be made pleasing to God through faith in Christ. Friend, maybe you've tried your whole life to get people to see you, to know that you were known and loved and approved of. God sees. He knows. He loves you. He bids you come to King Jesus.
in faith. Kingdom citizens don't pray as performance art or as pagans, but as a true expression of piety. Not to perform before the watching eyes of the world, but in obedience to the God they love. Jesus takes us to this third pillar of Jewish piety in verse 16 of chapter 6. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces. Do you see the pattern again? Hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces, that their fasting... Here's the same purpose again, right? To be praised by others, to be seen by others, to be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Fasting is not something that is commanded of Christians. In fact, uh, it was commanded of Jews only on two, t- two times a year, on the Day of Atonement and on the New Year. All other fasting was on a voluntary basis. The Pharisees, because they were super religious and super spiritual, made sure everybody knew that they fasted twice a week. Mondays, and Thursdays. And they made sure that if people didn't recognize they fasted on Mondays and Thursdays, that it would be obvious in their faces. They would look unkempt deliberately. They wouldn't wash themselves. They even put some ashes on their head for good measure. It would be sort of similar if, if you always left the house uh, unshowered, sweatpants, and no deodorant. And some of you are thinking, that's you most days of the week, Justin. Uh, I'm not fasting, all right? Not. They do this to be seen by others. Everyone, come look how humble I am. A humble activity is transformed into an occasion for pride. That which is to be about God's glory becomes about my glory. It is wild how they did this, isn't it? But before we too quickly cast stones, we should think about how this plays out in our own lives. There's a whole new genre of hypocrisy that exists today. I call it social media spirituality. I don't, I'm not on the, the snap face and the, um, the, the Insta whatever, in whatever they are. Uh, not on those, but I've seen them before. And there is a recurring theme among Christians, right? If you follow somebody who is a Christian, um, there is going to be documentation of every spiritual thing that they've ever done. All right, it's Wednesday morning, and here's the picture of the Bible laid out and the cup of coffee steam rising up. Great quiet time today. Love the Lord. And maybe your motivation's good. I'm not telling you don't post. But I am saying, 
Consider why you boast. Everyone, come look how spiritual I am. My face isn't disfigured, it's model-worthy. Here I am, smiling on the steps of the church with my family on Sunday again. We're here every Sunday. Or, or maybe you're a sort of Christian, you've gone through a, a hard time, and so the post, it, it's a picture of you and your home, and it says, you know, we've struggled financially, but the Lord's so good to us, we have a roof over our head and food in our bellies and coats on our backs. Look how humble I am. I don't even, money doesn't matter, the Lord's, he's, he's good, but look at me, worship him. Story of a father and his, his boy They're on their way through forest when all of a sudden they came across a significantly sized swimming hole. It was somewhat secret, but well populated. There were swimmers everywhere, the blue water went on for hundreds and hundreds of yards and had plenty of depth. Across this body of water was an old bridge, off of which some of the more, we'll say, adventurous swimmers were jumping into the water below. And of course, the boy said, Dad, can I jump off of the bridge? And his father smiled and said, no. They began to swim and enjoy the day, jumper after jumper off the bridge into the water, off the bridge into the water. And the boy implored his father, dad, please, please, can I jump off of the bridge? You know, appeals to if all your friends were jumping off a bridge, would you want to do it? They, they were not working here. Let me jump off the bridge, dad. And finally, the boy's father came up with a compromise. He said, son, I will let you jump off of the bridge into the water on one condition. We are not going to record it, no one is going to record it, and we will not post it to social media. Taken aback, the boy flung his hands into the air. What's the point? Do you live your Christian life that way? No one sees me giving or praying or evangelizing or having a quiet time. What's the point? What's the point if, if nobody's going to applaud my effort? What's the point? Beware of hypocrisy. Beware of living your life for the approval of others. At that point, the approval of others becomes your God, in some cases. And in others, you become the object that you are most concerned with worshiping. God does not share glory. Do you live for God's glory or for your glory? Kingdom citizens don't worry about being seen because they know God sees. Do you want to be seen? Let's pray.
Father, we come to you humble this morning, acknowledging just how sinful we are, that we can take good and right acts of worship and pervert them to being about us and our own glory. We confess that we are tempted to try and impress others. We are concerned with the acclaim of other people more so than we are with worshiping you. Forgive us these sins. We thank you that indeed you are good. You have made provision for all of our sins to be forgiven, past, present, and future, through the wonderful work of Christ. Lord, we pray that indeed your, your kingdom would come. Pray that you would help us to avoid hypocrisy, to live faithfully, striving towards holiness, not to gain glory for ourselves, but to love you back, to please you. You are our good, good Father. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.